Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, worship team. You know, uh, I remember years ago when we were um, challenging some of our our attitudes about church. And I remember noticing we had about four or five different worship leaders. This is back when Ben was really young, really young. And uh, I remember noticing that there was a different attitude on our worship leaders, some more than others, but some in particularly, if they weren't worshiping, they are leading worship, they didn't really worship. And it was like, it was almost like sometimes they drug, they were dragging their feet in the hopes that it wouldn't be as good as when they were leading. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, you know, I try to communicate, you should be worshiping as though you were leading worship all the time. In other words, you need to own this meeting uh, as if it's the same each time you come together. And we do that. Sometimes when the boss is calling us to a meeting, we go because we have to, but we don't own the purpose of that meeting necessarily the same way the guy who's leading the meeting does. We're not equally invested. And, and that's a natural d- dynamic of you know, the world around us. But I believe as Christians, if we understood what this meeting's about, we would be as invested every time, every day, whether we're tired, whether we're distracted, whether we're, we're, you know, no matter what the circumstances, because we realize that this is a moment when God can change my life. Like, ultimately, what this is about is having a God encounter. I today can today Jim, today, you, Jenna, today, you can have a God encounter that changes your life forever. That from this day forward, you know, we talk about, for example, colossal moments in our culture, like 9-11. There's before 9-11 and there's after 9-11. That incident, bad or good, changed, changed our culture. And likewise, in your life, there are moments that are before and after. And we don't know when those moments are going to come. But what they are, what, they, what defines them is God. God. And what he's saying to us is this, is you can have as much as me, of me as you want. In other words, don't wait for that moment to suddenly come upon you like, oh yeah, I don't know why it happened and why it didn't happen. Because the fact is, he said, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And so today, we are presented with an opportunity to sort of come along reluctantly or to wonder if there's any value in this moment or to say, no, God, this is a moment where I can set aside to seek you and to say, God, change me today. Lord, And so I'm saying right now, God, change me today. Father, you are life. In you is the key to everything. And we say we want to know you more. Lord, so we say come. Come into this place. As we draw near to you, you said you would draw near to us. And so we say, Lord, let this be. Let this be one of those moments. We want to seek you, God. We want to give you every opportunity to show us who you are. So let's stand up together and let's draw near to God as though he's there to be drawn near to and he's there to be encountered. God, we long for you today. God, we long to experience your presence, to experience your power, to see who you are, to find the purpose for which we were born. God, we want to find ourselves in you. We want to find our life in you today. Yes, Lord. Let's seek him. In Acts 17, it talks about Paul being in Athens, preaching the gospel for the first time. And it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, he gives, he gives all, to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they should grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And so this is a summation of what we're doing this morning. Because even though we have met God, even though you may be born again here today, the journey of this life as a Christian is the same as if you're not a Christian. It is meeting God and knowing Him and knowing Him more and more and more. And it says we grope. We grope because there are things beyond our knowledge, things beyond our understanding. And the there's an understanding that we have that without the light, without Him shining the light on the things we don't know, they are permanently beyond our understanding. And so, Lord, we grope today Though with some knowledge, we grope, we still say, God, show us your glory. We say to you today, Lord, show us your glory. Lord, like Moses, who though he had spoken with you so many times, yet he said, God, show me your glory. And we say today in our worship, Lord, we long to know you more. In you is life and the light of men. And Paul said, you are not far from any of us. And you long to reveal who you are. So, Lord, show us your glory. So, Father, we want to thank you for everything that you've done in our lives. We want to thank you for the opportunity to be in this nation so rich in its history of you. Lord, you have breathed upon this land with your blessing. And God, we want to say we want more. We want to know you more. So Father, we honor you today in Jesus' name. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a an amazing passage. But what drew me was the next verse. Because why has he saved us? And this is what it says. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, we get those Philadelphia cheese commercials with the the, the people up there with their little harps sitting on the clouds as though there's nothing to do. And that's not what eternity is about. We are not only going to be industrious and useful and diligent because God is a creative God. But in the ages to come, we are going to increasingly see the riches of His grace. I mean, how can you ever come to the end of knowing a God who is infinite, a God who with words created the entire universe. I mean, we, we couldn't travel and discover the extent of the universe 
in a million generations. And he spoke that with a word. So how great is he? And how far is he past discovering? So Lord, we want to say that we are humbled by the offer that you have made. That your love has extended to us an opportunity to live with you in eternity. And we want to thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your son, to remove the blot that was between us, that kept us from your holy presence. And we say today, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that paid for my sin. And today we stand refusing to pay our own way. And instead believing that your sacrifice is enough. Amen. Here's the thing. When, when Israel was slaves of Babylon, okay, they were slaves, right? That means they were there outside of their will. They were brought in chains and shackles. Many of them, family had been raped and killed and da, 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 da. So they, they're brought to Babylon. And you know what the prophet says to them? Seek the welfare of the city in which you dwell. Seek the welfare of the city in which you dwell. And, and the, the culture of, of Israel at that time was this culture of that we are God's representatives in the earth. We've been chosen from all the nations to be this set-apart people, this, this, you know, people who are morally pure, and so we have all these rules and these laws. But what they didn't understand was that God had chosen one nation to be a bridge nation to all the nations, not in order that they would say, be able to say, nah, 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 nah. And I think, you know, we, as Christians, sometimes we fall into that same sort of category. And I'm going to address perhaps some of the reasons why in a few minutes. But uh, so I absolutely love this because to me, the litmus test that you are actually growing into the image of Christ, that you are actually being changed, which is hopefully our agenda here as Christians, that God is changing us. The, the litmus test is that we actually love and what that means is they actually care about people. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I love this to me. Uh, not only its impact immediately, but I, I love the fact that it is, it is actually the litmus test of, if we, of what we have. Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Do you actually care about anybody? Now, here's why this is so important. I can't remember the name of the actor, but there's the show King of Queens. Anybody ever watch King of Queens? It's an old show now. What's the actor's name? Kevin James. Okay. And now he's in another show, Kevin Can Wait or something like that. Is that the one? Anyway, in that show, him and his wife, I can't remember, they had this one couple that they hung out with, right? And uh, so they did everything together. And, you know, this was, their, they, this was the extent of their community. And uh, anyway, they had had some kind of fallout where they, they weren't getting along or something happened. And so now they had no friends. And it was, you know, it's a comedy, right? So it's, it's funny. Everything's overstated. Everything's overacted. But they're out there. They're, you know, so, uh, so he's saying, you know, we got, we got to get out and get some friends. He said, well, how do we do that? And he said, well, I th- you know, let's go to Home Depot. And, and so they go to Home Depot and they're running around and they're, they're picking out couples that might be suitable candidates to be their friends. And so, you know, they feign this running into their, you know, cart with their cart. And, hey, uh, you want to come over? <laughs> you know, and it was this awkward thing where they're, they have, you know, they have no social skills. They have no ability to create relationship. And, and I mean, it just pointing a, a finger at something that's happening within our culture. And it's this, there is no community because the skills that create community are diminishing and, and so what happens, of course, from a sociological standpoint, people say, well, what we need to do is do this and this and this, except that those that don't understand the spiritual world that's around us don't realize one missing ingredient. That's not about having a bunch of programs, but there is a fuel, there's a fuel at the root of community, true community, kingdom community, that always begins with God. It says every good and perfect gift comes from above. That God is the one 
that actually creates the essential ingredients that make you want to have community and make you able to have community, and that commodity is love. You know, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgments against Sodom and Gomorrah, but, you know, we talk about sin, right? You know, they, it was gross sexual sin and homosexuality and all these things. It wasn't the only thing. In fact, that wasn't even the main thing. You know what the main thing was? It says they were unconcerned. Unconcerned. Pride. They were proud. They were, you know, heady. They thought the world of themselves, and they were un- unconcerned. They didn't care. They had no regard for anything but their own preservation, their own future, their own, you know, circle. And what happens when you look at this sociologically is that as that commodity, that invisible spiritual commodity of love that comes from God, as it diminishes, our capacity to have a circle of people that we care about gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. To the point where we have, and yes, I am a fan of sitcoms, that scene in Seinfeld where Seinfeld, this guy's trying to be his friend, and Seinfeld just doesn't have a capacity to fit one more person. He said, I already have three friends. Uh, I, you know, that, that tiny little circle is my world. And my world, it just can't be bigger than this. I can't fathom caring for more than three people. And we may think, well, three, you know. Well, you think, oh, you know, I have, a, I have 10, I have 15, I have 20, I have... Let me tell you, the increase of God at work in your life will always increase the sphere of the numbers of people that you could actually care about. And so, uh, and so that's, what, that's the actual, that's the key product that God is creating in you. It is a heart. And that's why when you read the scripture and God has this heart for all the nations, that's why he's always getting mad at people when they make it about themselves. When Israel was called and set apart and then they refused to obey God because they didn't want to risk what they had, God said, you don't understand. I saved you so that I can save all the nations of the earth. Because my heart, my circle includes not only you, but them. And so the transition, one of the transitions that's happening in our lives is that as we discover who God is, as he touches us what, with, with his love, we actually start to care about something more than four inches from our nose. Actually, really. We really begin to care. And so the issue of, you know, uh, what Chris has been doing with heroes and the schools and all the rest of it, this is not an offshoot, a, a nice thing. This is... This is the, the thing that we're looking for at the end of the road. This is the product. This is what we're trying to produce. And through that, the world will see him when they see our love. And so uh, it's not contrary. It is the result of the prayer and the worship and everything else. As we legitimately effectively are touched by God and touch God, we are changed. And it cannot help but cause you to start to look at the world around you very differently. Now, part of the problem we have in our culture is that we have a culture that has been built on Christianity. And uh, and so we've had, you know, certain things in our culture for so long that we just thought they were innate to who we were as Westerners. We thought, you know, and we look at other cultures, we think, well, you know, what, how can they do that? You know, how can the, the Nazis do that? How can they do that in Rwanda? How can the, the Khmer Rouge do that in uh, Cambodia? You know, how would they say this is atrocious? How does that happen? We must be just superior. We, might, we just must be less barbaric than the other nations. And we don't, what we don't realize is that the history of faith in the Western civilization was resulted from God. God breathed upon a nation of people that began to worship him. As people in a nation responded to him, God blew upon us and filled us with a certain capacity. Now, what's happening is the Western civilization has lost the connection. They didn't, oh, this result of community and wealth and all these things, you know, this is because we are such and such and such and such. And what, what God is saying, yeah, well, let's see how long that lasts. And as 
communities turn their back on God, all of a sudden, increasingly social problems, you know, the ability, the inability to work or to be creative, to find solutions, and, 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 next thing you know, uh, we're just like every other culture. And so, I remember realizing this a little while ago, because sometimes when you live in a culture, you think, and you grow up in a culture, and you have certain things that are taught to you, you just think, well, it's just common sense. You know, this is, this is the way we function. It's the right way. We know it's the right way. And we, we, we do it right because, you know, we're just thinking people who are, who are intelligent, and we have common sense. What if none of that was of your doing? What, what if all of that, that common sense, what if suddenly it wasn't so common, right? And I had a glimpse of that when I went to Bangladesh. I remember going to Bangladesh, and I, I, I was flying from Dubai to Dhaka, I think it's called. And um, uh, I was with uh, Mike Harrington. We were sitting close to one of the sets of the washrooms. And you had all these workers who were going, uh, to, uh, or going back home. They were working. They were migrant workers from Bangladesh. They were working in Dubai, and they were going back. And it was like this, maybe the second time they'd been on a plane, a lot of them. Like, they obviously weren't familiar with a lot of things. But I can't tell you how many times one of us had to get up and let them out of the washroom because they couldn't figure out the doors. And you think, you think well, what's the matter with them? You know, that's just a, a problem-solving skill that a five-year-old in our culture would have. And you think, what's the matter with that? I mean, these are grown adults going into an accordion-style door and getting in there, and they're stuck. They can't get out. And you just had to go over and, you know, push. In many cases, they didn't even lock the door. In one case, one guy, you know, he didn't think to lock the door, and, and the waitress or stewardess, they don't even call them flight attendants. Yeah, don't call them stewardesses now. They yell at you. Flight attendants, you know, walked in on one guy because, oh, there's a lock, you know. But you think, well, are we superior? No, we have been given something because of acknowledgement. Now, what we're discovering at this point in time is that those things that used to be permanent, those things that used to create community, those things that used to be a part of all of our families and our lives, they are eroding at a pace that is almost incomprehensible. And uh, and so you think, well, if but most of these families have lost faith and lost or not, haven't been serving God for a long time. You know, how is it? It's only eroding now. And there's there's a principle in physics, and what's it called? It's uh, inertia. The inertia of the kingdom of God, of faith in our culture, has carried us to a point, but that inertia is running out. In other words, the momentum that was created by Christ in a generation, three generations ago, okay, it, that ball is starting to come to a stop. And the reason why God allows things like that is for us to realize that it's not because we ourselves are any better. And as Christians, we should be championing that, that kind of humility, that kind of recognition that, no, it's God, it's God, it's God, it's God, needs to be central in our, in our lives. So, which brings me to the reason I'm here. I'm going to share a couple of things. I want to I look at something here because at the heart of this, and I'll, I'll try and create um, some connection to what I just said. Okay, let me, let's turn to a scripture, uh, Acts chapter 5. I was thinking about this this morning, and I, I want to touch on something. It's called hypocrisy. And, uh, but in Acts chapter 5, there's a great little story here. It's sort of a continuation of some warnings that Jesus gave earlier, but I want to read it for you, and we're going to talk about it. It says, but a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira's wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Excuse me. I don't know where that came from. I haven't eaten anything today. I forgot my banana at home. Uh, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let me just stop right there. Uh, the, the error was not, not 
their error was not not bringing it all. Their error was saying they brought it all and only bringing a part. And so he says, in a second, he says, listen, when you, when you had the land, whose was it? It was yours, right? And when you sold it, the money was yours, right? You have every right to do whatever you want with it. But what you did is you pretended to be something you weren't. Uh, and we'll talk about why that is in a second. So, so let's be clear that, you know, it's not about the amount that they brought. It's about the amount that they said they brought. And so it says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? While it remained, verse 4, while it remained, it, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Because they deliberately planned, let's do this. Let's sell it for so much. Let's keep back half and then bring the money and say, hey, we're bringing all of it. Uh, why have you conceived this thing uh, in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Well, that's pretty heavy, eh? So great fear came on all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. They're not wasting time. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon the church and those who heard these things. Now, uh, a friend of mine always says this, listen, were Ananias and Sapphira the only liars alive in Jerusalem at that time? No, no. It wasn't that God was saying everyone who lies is dead. What he was doing, what God was doing was making a statement about this thing because this was the birth of the church. And the birth of the church of all times, of all periods, had to be pure. There was a purity needed. And already, I mean, they, I mean, this thing hasn't even been going a year. And already there's ma- this huge public hypocrisy happening where a couple who have decided, wow, you know, when people do things, you know, significant, they get significant esteem from the group. And so the motivation for doing this thing was that if we do this, we could become something in this thing. Well, so what do you have there? You've got, you've got not only lying, you, you've, got, you've got ambition. And, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I actually a sense of superiority. We want to be important in this thing, and so we're going to lie our way there. And God said, listen, that's not what this thing is about. So the question is, how badly does God dislike hypocrisy? I mean, obviously, in this case, he's making a massive statement But what about today? What about in our lives? Uh, And I want to say this, that more than anything, God hates hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? At its root, and I was looking up some definitions here, it has to do with pretending to be something you aren't actually. Now, when you start putting it in that light, how many of you, and I don't want to show show of hands, but how many of us have ever done that? How many of us have, you know, you know, come to church, and all the way at the church, we're bickering at each other. How you doing? Oh, great. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Right? So, I mean, the tendency to be pretentious on some level is a human dynamic. And, and uh, hopefully, it's, it's happening in our lives in di- diminishing uh, amounts. But the question is, what about the whole of our Christian life? Like, this, is, this is the thing, you know, and it's, it's natural in some respects. Well, you don't want to just say, well, I'm miserable and, you know, tell everybody about, you know, the worst things that are happening in our life. But there is this undercurrent in us where we tend to want to pretend to be something that we're not. 
And God wants to eradicate that. Now, I, I feel like even right now, I'm really hitting something in the spirit. I, I feel like like confusion and all of this kickback. It's like it just stepped on one of those mothballs, you know. And I, I'm feeling this. And so I'm going to pray right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we will we'll give you, Holy Spirit, the permission to come and shine a light on our lives. Come and shine a light on on our hearts. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would do this thing in our lives. Now, let me just read a, a couple of passages about hypocrisy, and let me tell you about some of my own. Or Wendy's. I'm not sure which one I'll do. So, um, there's two scriptures that I want to look at very quickly. I'm just going to read them. Matthew 23, 27, and 28 says this. Jesus is preaching. It says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the tone of that suggests Jesus was not in favor of that kind of hypocrisy, right? Uh, so, and then in verse 12, it says this, And in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trampled one another and began to say to his disciples, first of all, uh, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that shall not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you, whatever you have spoken in the inner in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed on the housetops. God is against hypocrisy. Now, here's the problem. A big part of the foundation of this thing called Christianity has to do with being a better person. And, uh, you know, when I became a Christian, I ran right away into the culture of better and worse. I remember, actually, quite vividly, First time I was there, because I got born again, and I got born again with no illusions. I mean, I was, I was, I was in a bar, actually, when God visited me, his glory came. And, and, I, was, and I said, okay, I'm, I have to serve you, but I, don't, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I don't know how to be good. And I got a whole story around that. But I remember, you know, I, I moved away, moved to Edmonton, started staying with Kiki's mom. Where's Kiki? I just saw her there a minute ago. She, she's out in the hallway. You know, her son was uh, um, studying chemistry at the University of Alberta, so he found this way of getting hash into oil, and so we would sit down in his basement, because I, I would smoke marijuana and, you know, oil spliffs and stuff, and I was sitting down there, and, and uh, you know, one of these, I'm sitting down there, and I'm, I've been going to church now with her for a couple of months, and I'm going to Bible college in a couple, of, and I'm sitting there, and I thought, well, I can't, I can't, cleanse myself, and I'm not trying to, but I sit in there, and I remember thinking, God, this is really, I really like this. And then the, the, his presence came in the room, and he said, if you lay it down right now, you'll never pick it up again. And I, I just made a decision right then. So it wasn't me, my Christianity, and this is what I'm saying, wasn't me saying, I'm going to be that perfect guy. My Christianity was, I can't be anything but I must follow you. And this tension between not being what I ought to be or what you want me to be and, and you know, just being stuck and being exactly who I, I can. I don't, know, I, don't even, I don't even know how to deal with this. So it was a great foundation, and it was amazing how God began to speak to me. And when he came on a word like that, I mean, I was a boom. It was gone. I had no cravings. I, had, I, I just quit. It was great. Then I went to Bible school, and I had the same sort of attitude at first, uh, but I didn't have any two accomplishments under my belt. So, you know, I, I wasn't really anybody, and I didn't care. But anyway, we're driving. I met these guys first week of school. I met these guys. We're going out to, for pizza one night, and I'm, we're just talking. I'm telling this animated story, and all of a sudden, this word slips out in my conversation, which is not common in Christian circles. <laughs> and uh, and it was just, this, you know, is. You know, you can imagine. And I was like, 
whoops. And I just went on with my story. You know, I don't know where that came from. And anyway, but I didn't feel bad about it. But what I felt was the guys recoil. I felt their disapproval. I felt their fear. I felt their suspicion. And it, it said something to me. And I remember when I felt that, I thought, oh, never do that again. Now, it wasn't that it was the right thing. It was the response to it. But here's, in, my, in me, and this is my issue, is that their approval of me in that moment mattered. And, and what happened is, as I did the right things and approval was given to me, approval began to matter more and more and more. And I didn't realize that. And what happened is I started to play to the audience that was around me. And in a Bible school, school situation, there is an audience. And the, you know, the, the valuations are many and various and on so many different levels. And I started to play them. In this context, I found that there, if you did certain things well, you immediately gained some market share in terms of approval and traction and socially. And so I started... And I happened to be good at some of those things. A lot of it was, it was a you know, charismatic Bible school, so it was around the gifts of the Spirit and, and prayer and things like that. And, man, I was, I was, I was going like, like guns. And so it was going good for me, uh, except it wasn't because God was looking at me. And while my approval rating was going up in the, in the company of my peers, God was increasingly shocked at how quickly hypocrisy took over me. Now, let me, let me just say this. It wasn't that I decided to be hypocritical. It, it, was, it was just that I was lured into caring about one thing more than another. And I didn't see that there was any contradiction, really, because I'm just really trying to do the right things. But what I didn't realize is how much I was feeding off you know, the, oh, you are such a this and that. And I say, oh, yeah. You know, and my whole being was starting to be invested in the praises. And this is what the Pharisees had. This is what they had. They had a system, a system that evolved not around the wrong things. It was around the right things, but it's what men do with the right things. They do the wrong things with the right things. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were doing the wrong thing with the right things. And when Jesus came to them, he came to point out their hypocrisy. He says, listen, you've taken the right things and you're doing the wrong things with them. And you, you are pretending to be this when you're really this. And now what the Pharisees didn't realize is that dissonance between this and this causes this to deepen. The, the corruption that is inside of you. And I remember writing an article about that, that, that a body of water without inlets and outlets begins to become stagnant. And that stagnation creates a poisonous death atmosphere. It would it's, become as, as non-life-sustaining as if you had actually poured into it chemicals or sewage or things like that. It, it just loses its life because it needs the openness. And that's what hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy cuts off the inlets and outlets so there's no, there's no reality to that. And so when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, he wasn't just saying bad. He was actually giving them an out. You know, sometimes we look at that, we think, oh, yeah, those Pharisees, well, they were the ones that killed him and all that, but Jesus didn't hate them. But he, he said, listen, this stuff... He needed to shock them. That's why he said, you whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites, you, you're full of dead men bones. You know, he was, he was pretty hard on them. But because they were such a strong delusion, they could not see that, that this thing that they were doing was useless, was false. Now, uh, let me read a, a scripture and I've shared this story with you before, but my moment of reckoning came all at once. And again, it wasn't that God was mad at me. But turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, you remember at the beginning we were talking about love. Love actually cares. What do you do when you don't care? 
But you're in a culture that says to get ahead, you have to appear to care. You appear to care. We become victimized by those things. And that's what would happen to me. So I would read these verses all the time. I would read, I'll skip down. It says, love, it's the definition of love here. It says, love suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Now, this is not a to-do list. It's a, it's a list of characteristics. But in my mind, it was a to-do list because in the culture that I had seen, approval was hinged upon how well you did this list, except that there's a difference. Some people were doing it because love had become a part of them. Some people were doing it, like me, because it was a list that needed to be conquered. So for some, it was real and growing, For others, it was growing at a rate beyond what it was really growing. And and this is the thing. Because of all the stuff that was in me, I didn't know that this was anathema to God, that God actually hated that disparity between the love that I actually had and what I was pretending to have. He was actually quite happy with the small love that was in me. And he proved of me, having had only a little bit of love because he was actually, he was invested in growing me. I was invested in growing my reputation. And so one day he just showed me the real versus the false. And all of a sudden this thing that I'd built, which really wasn't huge, but in my mind I was, I was amazing. I, it was shocking, and it was terrible, and I've, not only did I feel like a hypocrite, but I mean, it was just, it was crushing. But it was only crushing because my esteem, my sense of myself, my value had shifted away from his love to the praise of men. And if you have any history with the Bible, you'll see one of the things that the Pharisees had is they were always looking to do things to be seen. Everything was about reputation. Everything was about how others saw you. And so uh, I, I got drawn into that. And I didn't understand. I didn't really understand that this was not a to-do list. And let me just talk about that for a second. Water is uh, a liquid. That's not a behavior. That's a characteristic. Water when poured out, flows downward. Okay. Now, if you, if you were an intelligent substance and you had the ability to mimic the characteristics of other substances, that doesn't make you that other substance. And, what, and that's, that's essentially what, what happened to me, is, is love is a real thing that expresses itself this way, and I wanted to be seen to have that love, so I did the thing that made me look like love. God hates that hates it because it shuts off everything that makes you having that love possible because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and the humble are the ones who say you know what I have a little bit of love and I'm not surprised by that and I'm not shocked by that and when the information starts to come in that suggests I only have a little bit of love I am not I'm, I'm not defensive. I'm not, you know, not trying to sell a different image. I'm just saying, God, change me. I mean, that's the way it should be. But instead, it's hard on us emotionally. Why? Because we are invested in the image. Not because it's actually hard on us, but it's because there's, the way we are doing this thing called Christianity is skewed. And God is saying, listen, if you really understood my love, that my love, my love can deal with your imperfection. My love can deal with the fact that you're this and you're that. And, and you're like a plant that I've, I've planted. And yeah, you're not the size of that plant over there, but you will be if you just stay rooted in the right ground and be watered. And you just have to endure the time. 
that it's going to take for you to be that. And that was the thing that I really, honestly, and I, you know, there's things that God does in your life when he's starting to speak to you about something, these little foreshadows. And I remember, I remember when somebody called me a baby Christian. Oh, I get so mad. Well, I didn't throw a tantrum, but I wanted to, <laughs> except I knew the list. It says love is not easily provoked. So I had to pretend that that didn't bother me. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I remember this guy, right before this, this thing happened, this guy told me I was proud. And I had to pretend that I was considering that. When I was really considering the many ways I could eviscerate him with a knife. You see, and I, I, even though this stuff's happening inside, I, I didn't realize that it was a problem, that there was such a disconnect between and what I really was. And what, what, what is it that caused me to be like that? Fear and ambition. Because fear, fear, fear drove the ambition. Fear is the opposite of love. Fear is what drives most of us to create a world that makes it safe for us. And that world can look the same as real community and real love, but it is not. It is self-preservation and narcissism, and it is nothing more than that. The kingdom of God is real community. The kingdom of God is real love. The kingdom of God is a true, seamless regard for the people that I brush shoulders with. And it's God's job and the Holy Spirit's job to show you the difference between what you're pretending to be and what you really are. And if you have asked God to change you, and if you've asked God for more of his love and more of his light, his first priority is to show you what you are not. Not to disqualify you, but to get you on the road to becoming what it is you're supposed to be. But it's counterintuitive. And it's hard. But it's, it changes the world. Real Love, And I believe we're at this place as a church where we're starting to actually care about community. We're actually starting to care about neighbors. We're actually starting to care. Selfishness says, well, why is he making all that money on my back? But, you know, to bless all of these business owners, to bless the teachers, to bless the students, to, you know, this it should be what we're about. So when the prophet says to Israel, said, seek the welfare of the city in which you dwell, that was odd to them because we're this and they're that, but it was really the outflow of a New Testament covenant that you should be about love. You should love one another. You should actually regard one another. And if that's hard, if you're like Jerry Seinfeld and you only have enough love for three people, or you only have enough love for your blood relatives, you know, and everybody's, you know, outside of that little circle is, well, they're just less. And I can't imagine really caring for anybody. That's the, really the issue. That's the problem. And what God is doing is, listen, he said, I have a capacity to love all of mankind. And as much as you want that capacity, I'm willing to give it. Do you want it? You know, Paul, uh, I think the writer, I think it was Paul, he said, he said, we loved God because he first loved us. So we come here Sunday after Sunday to experience God's love, not as an end in itself, but as, as, as the means to love the world because he says, I want to use you. The world won't know that I love them unless you love them first. So, Father, we want to thank you that you are freeing us from every kind of hypocrisy. And, Lord, we want to say to you right now, we're laying the, on the altar of our lives the dependence upon the esteem that comes, Lord, from the social constructs around us. Lord, we say in Jesus' name, we want to lay that down. All of the ways that we seek praise, that we seek approval, that we, we need others to see us a certain way and to regard us. Father, we want to be the ones who establish that value for others instead of seeking it for ourselves. So, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit right now
that you would just uh, flick those switches deep inside of us. And um, God, we want to we participate in this love and this grace that you're shedding, that you're bringing to our nation, to our city, to our province. And Lord, we say, do it in us first. Amen. Do you have something to share? I, I feel you do. <laughs> you know, um, one of the accusations that comes against God, uh, particularly you'll see it in comments on the internet, you know, somebody will post something from a Christian perspective and the comments back will, will start uh, throwing accusations against God that he's not loving and they'll point to all sorts of things like Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. Um, how does that demonstrate God's love or God commanding the Israelites to go and wipe out a people and how does that demonstrate God's love and so the accusation comes that God is not loving and so this actually is is worth looking at for a moment and that is this when Ananias and Sapphira came in and they are lying and they're demonstrating this hypocrisy and God says no I can't have that in the formation of my church so he, he plucks them out but can you remember God has an eternity perspective doesn't say he took them and threw them straight into hell. That's not there. It doesn't say what happens. Um, essentially, I actually feel like they're probably no worse than most of us most of the time. My guess is they ended up in heaven with him. They were followers of Christ. They were just caught up in this, in this self-delusion here or this, this ambition for a moment. And so he had to take them out because it would have ruined the formation of this thing he was building. So... Let's never get caught. Anything you see in Scripture, Old or New Testament, let's remember, this is settled. God is love, and that's the love that he wants to grow in us. And it's just, just as Mark said about the, you know, the plant growing, again, love, you know, that, that to-do list of love isn't a to-do list. It, it, treating it like a to-do list is like taking wooden apples and taping them to an apple tree to say, look, fruit, great fruit, Right? Fruit has to be produced out of the life of the thing. So for us, that love needs to be produced. So when you find it lacking, don't fake it. You go to the source and you say, oh my goodness, I'm lacking love. God, please build love in me. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to be really clear. Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead is actually an act of love. And so let me just say this. Um, I think most of us are, are Christians here, but uh, we have a number of visitors. And, and uh, if you don't know God, I just it's very simple. Just begin to read his word and ask him to come into your life. Tell him, I, I need to know who you are. I want to know who you are. And uh, And so... I bless you, each and every one of us, as we uh, conclude today. I want to thank God for the opportunity to have this walk together. All right. Uh, Have a great day. Wait.